Please be seated. People of God, it was Thomas Watson, a great Puritan, who once wrote that repentance is the grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Let me repeat that. Repentance is the grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. It's a marvelous definition of repentance. John the Baptist, as we're considering in this season of Advent, is the powerful figure with a symbolic significance to the people of Israel. He comes into the scene in Matthew 3, as we saw last Lord's Day. And he's looking for this inward humility and this visible reformation in the people of Israel. But his message of repentance was not well received by the first century establishment, religious nor the media of the first century. It was not politically correct to preach this message. And this is why even politicians of our day are not fond of hearing the boldness of John. In our passage, Matthew informs us, that the great John, the great prophet, he is in prison. And we discover later in Matthew that the reason that John is in prison is for speaking out against the political re- leaders of the day, which is not an unknown fact to occur to the great prophets throughout redemptive history. The prophets, the men who are called by God, are called to speak directly to the civil authorities of the day, And so in the Gospels, in the Gospels, we find a very clear violation of what we call in this country the separation of church and state, because there is no such thing biblically. In the Gospels, John the Baptist is not afraid to confront the leaders of the day when they're breaking the seventh commandment, when they are committing adultery. According to John, all peoples, all spheres, All spheres are to submit to the law of Yahweh, including those in the state. And so John expected, because he is from a long line of prophets, he expected this reaction from the religious and political leaders of the day, and he was quite aware of the consequences. All prophets are aware of the consequences once they're called by God. He knows they are a brood of vipers, they're serpents. But what is truly unexpected to John He expected the reaction from the leaders of the day, but what is unexpected to John is the one that he's introducing to the world. He has this great task of introducing the Lord of the world to the world, but there is something unexpected about the way in which this Lord comes. And so this story in the Gospels has to do with expectations, which is the very theme of the Advent season, expectations. Have you ever been reading or watching something, only to discover that the ending was something you never expected. The plot just took this unexpected turn on you, and you're left wondering, what is next? And this is what happened to John while he was in prison. The narrative, the narrative of Jesus, the narrative he thought he knew, took an unexpected turn. And John was visibly disappointed. He heard about what Jesus was doing, and it didn't sound at all like the show he thought they had rehearsed. He was expecting Jesus to be a man of fire, an Elijah-like character. He was the Elijah-like character, but not the way John expected. This Elijah-like character would come into the scene, and he would sweep through Israel just as Elijah did to 
the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Baal. And so though in prison, John was even in those days allowed to receive visitors, including his own disciples. It is from the mouth of his own disciples that he learned about the activities of the Messiah. And the deeds of Jesus, the Messiah, puzzled the great prophet. And so he sent word by his disciples and he said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another one? Now, before we consider this question, there's a significant question that needs to be raised at this point. And the question is, did John not know that Jesus was the Messiah? Did he not know that Jesus was the Messiah? Some scholars believe that John was not in doubt, but rather his disciples were. And so he sends them to Jesus to take away their doubts, not his own. But the problem with this is that when the disciples asked Jesus if he was the one who is to come or if they should look for another, you know what Jesus' response was. Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. So John is the one who is primarily in doubt. John is the one Jesus is emphasizing needs to undo his doubt. And so our Lord sent the disciples right back to John, giving the indication here that these are questions that arose deeply from within John. And not the disciples. But why would John, another question, why would John, the great forerunner of redemptive history, express any doubt about Jesus and his work? After all, he was the one given the task to prepare the way of the Lord. He was the one who baptized the Lord of the world. And he saw the heavens open. He saw the spirit descending like a dove and the father affirming Jesus as the true one who is to come. And if John had seen all these things, why is he still in doubt? Why does he still need further confirmation? I believe that John's doubts stem from a misunderstanding of the work of Jesus, both presently and futurely. There was a misunderstanding of the work of Jesus, both presently and and futurely. Let me explain this a bit more. In Matthew 3, you remember, John introduced Jesus as the one who will bring fire from heaven, as the one who will destroy the unrepentant with unquenchable fire. That is the message of judgment that Jesus comes. Jesus is the one who will sift Israel, cut down the corrupt trees from the forest. And yet here, Jesus is healing, raising the dead, Casting out demons. And John wonders, where is the fire from heaven that was promised? You see, in John's eyes, his prophecies are not being fulfilled precisely as he expected. The narrative is taking an unexpected turn. John misses the nature. John misses the progression of the work of Yeshua. And the earthly ministry of Jesus is really a two-phased ministry. It's a very simple ministry in many ways. First, he's going to proclaim the gospel. This is what he does. He proclaims the evangelion. And then on the basis of their rejection, on the basis of their disbelief, on the basis of their unfaithfulness, corruption, on the basis of them taking offense to be scandalized by the gospel he proclaims, and then Christ will act as the messianic judge. And then he'll act as the one who will bring judgment. And John seems to miss the big picture here. He wants the entire messianic rule to happen all at once. But he forgets that there is always an interval for preaching, for repentance, and for forgiveness. 
N.T. Wright summarized this point perfectly when he said, just as wicked people don't like the message of judgment because they think rightly that it's aimed at them, so sometimes good people don't like the message of mercy because they think wrongly that people are going to get away with wickedness. Very simple fact. Perhaps the best example here, I think, what what's happening in the ministry of our Lord is pictured for us in the times of Noah. You remember the message in Genesis that Noah preached a message of what? A message of grace, a message of repentance and of patience before he preached a message of coming doom. And so the narrative here portrays Jesus in many ways as a greater, as an exalted Noah who comes preaching repentance to the Jews so that they may turn from their ways and not be damned, not be condemned in this flood of judgment being brought by our Messiah. And for many, of course, we know what happened in the first century. We know that that flood of judgment came fully in the destruction of the temple in AD 70 when over one million Jews were killed. But there was also many who were delivered from this here. And this deliverance has found this great theme of repentance that is preached by John. By Jesus. It is also preached by all the disciples back in the early 30s of the first century and for the next generation, all the way leading up to the destruction of the temple 40 years later. And so God first declares his son to the world. He declares his gospel to the world, the good news to the world. And then upon the rejection of his son, then he condemns a very simple two phase ministry of mercy and then condemnation. But there's a certain message of doom, obviously, in the ministry of Christ. But I want you to notice this morning what is more prevalent in the ministry of Jesus in verses 5 and 6. As we read this morning in our lesson, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not scandalized, is scandalizo, offended by me. <clears throat> you may count if you would like, but there is a sevenfold description that symbolizes here the fulfillment, the culmination of all prophecies here, symbolizes the fulfillment of all things in this anointed one of Israel. He has come for such a time as this. He has come to fulfill the sevenfold prophecy, but he will fulfill them according to the plan of his father, not according to the plan of his disciples. And so John, in one sense, misunderstood the fullness of, the completeness, the progress of the messianic work. He imposed his own ending in the story when he should have known that triune God is a better story writer, that the triune God operates differently than our earthly expectations. Certainly, Jesus will bring judgment, but Jesus will judge a people only after he has demonstrated his long-suffering, his patience and his mercy toward this hardened generation. Jesus is building a kingdom, a new kingdom among his people. And these healings, these wonders are the signs that this kingdom does not have an earthly origin. But it has its origin from above. And for instance, we see this here that the fifth work of Christ listed in our passage is the work of raising the dead. It is one thing to heal, but it is another to raise someone from the grave, right? And what Jesus is teaching us here is that he's going to raise from the dead a new generations. He is going to grant them flesh. 
He is going to take away their heart of stone. He's going to raise a new generation to serve him. He's going to raise a new humanity who will embody the mission of the kingdom, who will embody this sevenfold ministry of healing one another, of healing the nations. And you may look at Jesus' work of giving sight to the blind. You may look at his work of raising the dead. And you may be tempted to think that these are only individual people being healed and being raised. But it is much more than that. Because everything that Jesus does to individuals in the Gospels, the prophets say that he will do to the nations in the Gospel and throughout redemptive history. These miracles, these wonders are all symbolic in many ways for how God will restore Israel and for how he will restore, according to Galatians 6.16, the new Israel of God, the new people of God, the people who live in the, after the first century, even to the end of history. And so he is leading the people from darkness to light. And what we know biblically of this is that this is really just another picture of the Exodus. He is bringing the people out of darkness and Yahweh is making them whole as we cross the sea of despair. And in verses 7 through 11 in our narrative this morning, Jesus takes the opportunity to address the crowd and offer them an apologetic, a defense of John the Baptist with a series of rhetorical Questions here. Now, John, Jesus is concerned about John's doubts. Obviously, he probably has undone those doubts in John. But John is the greatest prophet who comes, introduces Jesus. And the defense of John the Baptist is very significant as Jesus continues his ministry. And these defenses here, these apologetic rhetorical questions, they seem like absurd questions. But really, that's the point of these questions. They're absurd. There is an absurdity when you deny the ministry of John, the forerunner. They're absurd because denying the authority of John's message is simply absurd. What did you expect when you saw him, Israel? What did you expect this man to do? A reed shaken by the wind, which is perhaps a reference to a cane grass, which was found in abundance along the Jordan, Jesus using common imagery, a reed shaken by the wind, a fickle person tossed about in his judgment by the winds of, of public opinion. Did you really think that I would send a man who would be tossed around? No. Did you expect a man dressed in soft Clothing, and the language here connotes softness and even an effeminate way of dressing. Did you really expect my forerunner, the only forerunner I have prophesied and chosen to introduce me to the world? Is this your expectation? And then here is the kicker. Here is the powerful display of Jesus here as he confronts the political leaders of the day. Likely, probably not a healthy political move for some of our politicians today. They will certainly lose positions. But Jesus says that if you want to see a feminine man wearing soft clothing, you will find them in king's palaces. That is where you'll find them. And this is Jesus' subtle denunciation. This is Jesus' condemnation of the men who are keeping John in prison. You have imprisoned my prophet unjustly. Now remember here, as we said last week, that the harshest language in the Bible is always reserved for the religious leaders of the day who betray the gospel and betray the people of God. 
What then did you go out to see Israel? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. John was like a sturdy oak, not like a trembling reed. He is the uncompromising prophet of Israel. The greatest of all the prophets of the older covenant. Jesus says that he is more than a prophet. For John not only prophesied, but John was himself the object of prophecy. As Jesus says, quoting from Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He is the greater Elijah. John expected earlier that Jesus would be an Elijah figure, uh, that Jesus would be an Elijah figure, but Jesus is a greater Elijah. He paves the way, for uh, John rather, paves the way for the Messiah's coming. And indeed, so great is the prophethood of John. This is a wonderful little catechism question for our children. Who was the greatest prophet of all according to Jesus? And some may say Isaiah. Some might say Elijah. Some might say Jeremiah. But the greatest prophet of all was John the forerunner. And Jesus says, indeed, John was the greatest man ever born of women. And so Jesus points the people's attention to the man who is imprisoned by Herod, the man who was unjustly in prison. He is the one whose arrival upon the scene of history has been prophesied. In fact, the ministry of John foreshadows the cross of Jesus here. Why? Because both John and Jesus, you'll notice, are bound in the text. John is the last and greatest of all Old Covenant prophets, and his death points ahead in the story to the death of one who is even greater than John. But yet, though exalting the status of John's prophethood, and there, here is the, the subtlety of the narrative here, the unexpected turn that any reader would be certainly shocked as they were considering. Here is the unexpected turn as our Lord makes this startling claim in the Scriptures. But yet... After everything I have said about the beauty, the prophetic ministry of John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than this man that I have been praising again and again. Now, what does Jesus mean by least here? Jesus is saying that even the one who lacks full maturity, even the little infant or the newly converted adult who is like an infant, will be greater than John. Because least in the Bible does not mean a permanent status. Least in the Bible means a current status that has an expectation of growth, an expectation of exaltation. Faith is not all created equal. Faith comes at different stages. There is youthful faith, there is infant faith, and faith always grows like a seed in the Scriptures. Now, how can anyone be greater than John? And so this question here really assumes a particular view of redemptive history, because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is the beginning of this new era in redemptive history. All of this seed planted in the first century is really the beginning of this new stage in history. And what Jesus does is he introduces the kingdom in his redemptive work at the cross. He introduces the kingdom in his resurrection and in his ascension. And what does all this mean? It means that the least in the kingdom of God are those who partake of the kingdom that he has introduced. 
And this is the message of salvation. Do you want to be united to this Messiah who comes and brings mercy and doom? Then unite yourself to the kingdom that he introduces. And John the forerunner and Jesus the Messiah introduced two distinct eras in redemptive history. The era of John and the era of Jesus. One is following the other. Both are part of the same history, but both introduce two distinct parts of that same history. John, the forerunner, comes and he becomes the greatest of all prophets in the Old Covenant. From Genesis to the end of Malachi, there is no greater prophet but John, the greatest of all prophet of the old creation, of the older covenant. But Jesus comes along and he introduces a new covenant. And he is now the greatest of all prophets. John concludes the old creation prophethood and Jesus prepares and brings, introduces the new creation prophethood. And even though John was great, those who live in this new kingdom era are greater than John. Your little infant, your little baptized infant is greater, is greater prophet than John. As Psalm 8 tells us, his cries, his babblings are frightening to the enemies of God. We live in this messianic kingdom where all the people of God united to the kingdom are greater prophets than John. We live under the fullness of this messianic reign. And because of that, we are priests, we are prophets, and we are kings. And all that the prophets leading up to John prophesied, all that the prophets from early even from Moses till the last prophet John, all that they prophesied, we now have in the great prophet Jesus the Christ. John never lived to see the death, resurrection, and ascension of Messiah. John's head, as you know the story well, was cut off. And Jesus, in perfect vengeance, cut off the head of the evil one. John never lived to see the death and resurrection and ascension of Messiah. But all of us here, this morning, this morning, we live in light of the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Messiah. And that is a position of privilege that you are not to despise. And there are many things that are taught to us in this passage here. How shall we then live? I want to go back to verse 6 in Matthew, where the Bible says, And blessed is the one who is not scandalized, who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one, as I translate, who is not scandalized by me. That is, blessed is the one who is not scandalized, who is not offended by the teachings, by the words, by the actions of Jesus. In short, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by the kingdom that he brings. And I think it is very safe to say that we at this congregation, we are not scandalized by Jesus' kingdom. Because our desire is, as we pray this morning, that the kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. But what about the political implications of this kingdom? There is no better time of the year to talk about the political implications of the kingdom of God than this season of Advent nearing Christmas. Are we scandalized this morning by the implications of the kingdom of God on earth? Do you share the kingdom's agenda of renewal in the face of the earth? 
Do you share the agenda of repentance that John brings so vociferously, vociferously and so strongly? Do you share the kingdom's agenda more practically and more currently that marriage was defined by God in Eden and that it can never be redefined? Do you share that agenda? I hope you add a hearty amen. Do you share the agenda of the kingdom that doctors who destroy the unborn need to be punished and need to repent of their transgressions? Do you share the agenda of the kingdom that human trafficking and prostitution of children that occur in places like the Philippines even today is a tragic undoing of the dignity of God that he has given his children? Do you share that agenda? You cannot, you should not, you must never separate the kingdom of God from modern politics. Because the kingdom Jesus brings begins right here in this gathering. But its goal is to touch in every area of life. If you are indeed a greater prophet than John, then you have a prophetic duty to challenge the powers that be where they are scandalized by the gospel. Let the world be scandalized by this radical gospel. But let us live out this scandalous grace in the midst of the people prophesying with the boldness of John the forerunner and teaching all the nations to submit to the law and the commandments of Yahweh. But back to our desire, our conversation on expectations. How about our expectations this morning as a people? How many of us can say this morning that our lives today is precisely what we envisioned 10 years ago? How many of us have dared to do what Ecclesiastes warns us against doing? How many of us look at ourselves as the master of our fates and the captain of our souls? How many of us believe that we are better story writers than God? We wouldn't say it, but at times we act that way. Sometimes we think that Jesus needs to act in a particular way, because if he doesn't, then he's not the Messiah he promised he would be. Sometimes we think he needs to act in a particular way because we believe that we have figured out how God acts in our lives. Because we believe that the bad that occurs to us is God's way of destroying our lives rather than his way of reforming our lives. And sometimes we use our personalities, we use our past, we use our peculiar interpretations to excuse our ignorance in thinking that God is not doing it right unless he is doing it the way I think is best. And we call these ungodly expectations. We call this bad writing. And we need to rid ourselves of these expectations immediately. John's doubts are no longer doubts that we entertain because we see history differently than our first century brothers and sisters. But at the same time, we find ourselves, even in our day-to-day, doubting, rewriting our future, thinking that Jesus does not know all things well and doesn't do all things well. This is a lack of faith. We are to see history this morning through the eyes of a risen and ascended Christ. And all the Advent passages, as you will note, if you read through them, are full of questioning, full of wondering and perhaps doubtful men and women. Zechariah doubts. Joseph considers. Mary ponders. John questions. And Advent teaches us that God does not work as we would expect him to work. God's works among us today 
will not be manifested the way we think it should, because God is not a mechanical God. He works covenantally in history. And so our responsibility, our duty in our day to day, in our lives, is to live a life of submission. Because ours, our lives, is to be a life of faith, marked by humility, as we too ponder, as we too wonder over, as we too await the revelation of the Son of God, whose kingdom shall have no end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.